This is the Where You At Buds podcast, where ordinary people share their extraordinary stories with Stephen, Evelyn, and Marcus. You've got a glow right now. I, I like do? It. Yeah. Oh. I like I, it. I, See, a, I, needed, I think that's what it is today. I think I just needed some positive energy. I just needed, you know, a little bit of that yeah. today, maybe. Friar, it's work, a healthy living. Work Clean eating. down a bit. And oh, well, you get to hang out with us. Yeah. Clean Great. living. Positive stuff. I met the Schellenberg family. Um, you know, her dad was the first one to stick his hand in my prostate. Oh no, my I'm just God. kidding. He never did that. I'm just joking. Did he pull the cold glove little, out? Little embellishment. No, he didn't wear a glove. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Not the first time. Thing? It's not the first I time I've heard that. So. Oh, it's a Saskatchewan thing. Manitoba. Um, oh, Manitoba. Sorry, that's right. Manitoba. Cut Moore says to me, he says, oh, hold funny. on, let me, get, let me grab this glove out of the fridge. I'm like, are you... You're joking, oh right? He, and of course, he was just ripping my chain. He's got right? the biggest hand. Like, okay, so we used to have to stock doctors' gloves by size, right? And when I worked at the hospital, I worked in purchasing. Cudmore had like size nine, as opposed to like someone like Dr. Kelly, who's like a size six. Like, who do you, who do you want um, <laughs> sticking their hand? A small woman. <laughs> right? I choose a small It'll woman. Take Dr. Kelly. Mine. Thank you. Can the well, tiny nurse from the front desk check, please? That's right. Thanks for making me feel better. <laughs> I want the five foot tall one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Is there a glove size five that I can? Oh my God. Oh, doctor. Can I shake his hand first? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, you're not my doctor. <laughs> Yo, doctor, I need to get the prostate checked, but your fingers look like sausages, so I'll pass. <laughs> Thank you. I'm no healthy. That's right. Good news. <laughs> Good news. I'm clenched. Relax. I can't relax. I can't relax anymore. Relax. Oh, I did that. Oh, that was God. The first, that was the first one. I go, how can I relax with your finger up my ass? <laughs> my doctor lost her shit. She thought it was the funniest thing and then I told people about that moment and then you said that to your doctor <laughs> of, course. of course I said that to my doctor living in the moment man oh my gosh yeah but you guys like but she had a picture of George Canyon on her on her ceiling for her female <laughs> I need I need oh who's George my Canyon? god I don't know country who George singer. Canyon is uh, country singer good looking oh. country oh singer. my god that's if I was gonna you're say. definitely from Calgary for sure yeah for yeah. sure like what you know what women endure we're not even gonna get into that today's about yeah. men's health but you know that's like maybe honestly come on right you get a little finger up the butt once in a while it's okay think about what the, like a fryer <laughs> it's invasive we're not gonna it's go invasive. there are we like seriously are we no. just already we're we're overtaking this yeah today. we're gonna this kick off start. the show with no this finger up the butt yeah oh. done yeah i'm yeah. not joking this come is gonna on. be the beginning <laughs> of the show come on why not no why do you think i, I added you yeah, you obviously haven't heard going. our podcast. Uh, <laughs> have another IPA, Scripnik. <laughs> we're getting loose in here. Oh, yeah. What, what are you drinking? What is that? What, what are you drinking? The, uh, don't let the muggles get you down. Yeah, it's a Citra the IPA. Potter wow. Look at the, the can. It's a Citra. That label is awesome. It's a, yeah. They have another... Um, Game of Thrones, that's it. Great double IPA. Holy. Oh, on your ass. double IPA. Double, yeah. 8%er. Yeah. <laughs> Two and a cruiser bike oh. ride home. That's, that's right. A, that's right. That's a laugh in a minute. That's that right. What do you got there, Friar? Listen, I am biting into today. I love Ben and the boys at Backcountry. Massive shout out. Always sending me along a couple loggers. And this one, is, it's actually really special. This is Run mm-hmm. Forest Run. They're going to be rocking this yep. stuff at the Logger Sports Fairgrounds. I'm sure you'll be able to have one of these tasty beverages uh, while you're chowing down on a, on beef, a beef and bun. On a bun. Yeah, so but, that was brewed specifically for Squamish Days Festival. It's the Run Forest Run, and it's a light lager, which is right up Friar's Alley. It, it looks it, like a chili tom. It does look oh. somewhat like that, too, does it not? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's it looks like a lot amazing like can. They always have amazing labels. For I love it. Beers. I have a beer fridge that's now covered. I have to find another place to stick all the labels. Great idea. Yeah, we should do that. Labels peel off brilliantly. Look at yeah. that and, other can, Friar. You know. See that Millhouse one? What is it? Everything. Here, oh, yeah. Everything's out. coming up Millhouse. Yeah, right? and look at it. It's got the chief it's on brilliant. it. Like, that's such yeah. a, like, that label is so nice. Um, run, Forrest, run. Like, I'm, you know, I'm just going to let you in on a little secret. Like, I cry when I watch Forrest Gump. Like, it, there are some parts in there that are extremely saddening. Like when his mom's banging the teacher? No, it's like, it's like, <laughs> I don't no, like that part. Like, it's more like Jenny. It's when, when Jenny gets sick and, Jenny, you know, Jenny. Jenny yes, yes. Jenny, yes. she gets sick. Yes. And, you know, some of those parts. Uh, yes, and for sure. Him getting screwed around, but things always kind of come up roses yeah. for him because he has that personality. Because, I, again, you guys know me. I love the positive stuff, right? That's mm-hmm. why, again, I needed, I needed this vibe today. You do have Couple definitely. more IPAs. Yeah, there's some, everything. Uh, comes up Millhouse there for you for sure. Everything will come up Millhouse. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Where You At Buds podcast. And today, joining us, 
business strategist, entrepreneur coach, keynote speaker, author, podcast host, mental wellness advocate, Mr. Mike Skripnik. Hey. How are you, sir? I'm doing amazing. I'm very happy to be in the pod shed today. This is awesome. Yeah, this is really good. I'm really looking forward to this one. You forgot to mention that he's an all-around rad guy. And also author is an understatement. You've written like, what, 10 books? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just finishing my ninth, so it's right. pretty fun. And I swore I'd never do another after number one, and then after number two, and then after number three. Is it a big process doing books? Like, I mean, some people find it easier to write. Like Stephen King can basically fart on a paper and it's, it works for him. But some people, if it's a struggle to find the words, I guess being prolific as you are, it must come easy for you. It's cathartic. Uh, I've found that it just comes out of my like my brain into the ends of my fingers and then I will spend a month or two without being able to write anything. Uh, so that's a difficult process. But then once it's out, it's like I admire artists, you know, musicians. You come and hear the hits. You want to hear Rolling Stone Satisfaction or whatever. You want to hear the hit, right? The last thing I want to do is talk about the book I just wrote. Like right. once you're done it, it's almost like you're done. It's out of your brain. It's put over there and you can move forward with something. But people don't show up for the book that you're going to write. They want the one that you did. So it still carries on, but it's it's a thing. And uh, the process about, you know, having writer's block and all that, it's all real. Uh, but then you sit down and all of a sudden, three hours later, you can have something masterful done. So it just comes naturally. So um, your process is basically, I have an idea. Now it's all out there. Now I don't want to touch it anymore. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in the past also was I want to position myself in this way, in this market, in this moment, and I've got something to share that is going to help people or be a part of a course or something. And that's always been something for me that drove the process. And here I am now writing a book that isn't really, it's not driven for business. It's more about sharing a big story. So it's different. What does that look like? Like, I know Mark's asking about the process, but what does it actually look like? You, okay, you get this idea, like he's saying, we just start spewing stuff onto paper, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah. Kind of. And then what? And then you go. Then you're back editing it kind of I, stuff. And I know you this right is... Till you're right. No, this is just, a pod shed, right? So, yeah, and then you go... I don't fucking like this. And then you step back from it and you throw it on the side and then eventually you come back and you go, oh, okay, what, do I, what was I trying to say? You know, I started the current book like a memoir. I'm like, ah, who wants to listen to another freaking story about someone's life they don't know, right? So I thought, okay, well, that's going to change. And then, then I put myself in the other side. What message am I trying to stay? And who am I trying to talk to? Because I don't want them to go, yeah, Mike, so what? I want them to go, oh, that was helpful. Maybe I learned something or that was interesting. So then I stuck myself in the other side, the reader. And now I've got, I went, oh, this is how we build it. This is how I structure it. And now I have to fill it out. So you kind of fall naturally into that anyways, though, right? With your previous books, that kind yeah, of thing, right? I've, so you're kind of guiding people, right? Well, there was a big stretch on where I went from the last book to where I am now. You know, in the process of writing all the previous books, it was I had a message. I wanted to teach somebody, you know, how to do it. And it was part of how I coached and how I trained people or, or what I was teaching, right? And now it's like people need to know what I'm sharing in this book and so it wasn't a natural fit. It wasn't really, it's not moving into life coaching. It's just all of a sudden I've got a message that is important to share with people and now I'm sharing it. And So how many nights are you're second guessing yourself? Like every, you know, you just did this massive right. You step back and you go, I imagine there's a lot of like, oh, it's oh geez, I can understand. It'd just be a constant struggle where you're just back to the paper. Oh, you suck at the end of the book. The beginning <laughs> of the book sucked. Right. You're like, I wrote that yeah. seven months ago or whatever. And so you're better at the other side of it. Right. And so it always isn't good enough. If you don't have a process, you don't set deadlines, you don't put some structure around it. You'll never finish. Like there's a lot of people with books in them and they never get them done. It's because they don't have any structure and they don't have a deadline. And the other thing is, is you have to be comfortable that it's never going to live up to your expectations. My next question is then when do you know to stop? Like, when do you know, okay, this is it. This this is done. This is the finished product. Back deadline. For me, it's a deadline. You I give yourself say, that deadline? I want to publish X. And this time, I was kind of keep pushing out the date, right? And so, how do I stop doing that? Well, I pre-sold. <laughs> I said, oh, hey, pre-sell the book, and it'll be ready in summer of 2022. I'm like, holy shit, I got to get done. Now I'm on a schedule, and I'm a behind schedule, but we'll dial it in. I mean, this isn't my first book. 
So there's procrastination. <laughs> a little bit of procrastination. Like self procrastination. You, know, you know what? It's it's really you know distract <laughs> distraction. That's okay. Everybody does it. Life gets distracting, <laughs> like, right? Like yeah, different things step in the way, and I found it was really great. I started blogging every single day uh, between six and seven a.m. I wake up, have my coffee, and start writing. And I chose something to write about. And this, the early part was write about every chapter in the book and do something in LinkedIn so I could do it in public. So what I was doing was getting real-time feedback from the responses, the engagement on how my book was going to read. And it helped me sort the entire book out. And so chapter by chapter, I would kind of put something out there. Now it's two months in and I've been every bloody day I'm blogging or putting something out. And it's, you know, you just kind of craft it out of nowhere. And sometimes that's not easy. But you do it. You have to do it. And that discipline really helps. And so I'll get it. I'll get it done. But it helps that it's personal. Tomorrow. Right? <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> right? You said you were in like a happy mood. Yeah, there's some love in the room. Like that's the part of my book. And I'm talking about authenticity, love, happiness, trust, you know, really great things that are emotions that are connected to feeling good about life. And so that's where I am right now in the book. And maybe we'll glean a little bit of gem. So we just got to where you at, buds? Give us a shout out. And in... <laughs> He just gave everybody, he just gave everybody the, the, the lowdown on where he's at with it, which is awesome. That's great. Thanks yeah. to these guys. Um, I was able to finish my book. Um, I had a few IPAs. Thanks to Backcountry. Shout out to Backcountry. <laughs> I can see it all now. It's fine. There'll Chuck be a credit. credit. There'll Chuck be a them credit. a couple handfuls of mushrooms. We get the thank, you, the thank you credits at the end. Thank Do you, you know Tamara Stanners? <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> she have a farm? She's here, she's here in Bracado. We can probably look at that we can hook her up. One of the gems, you know, I remember back, we, we came from Calgary originally, and so we've been living in Squamish for four years now, and um, I remember when our Newfie neighbors moved in uh, behind us, and we had all these kids, and we had these open fence policy and a hockey rink in our backyard. What he did is he goes, yo, Mike, where are you at? And I went, well, I'm in my backyard, Mark. That's where I am. And he's like, no, 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 no. Where are you at? Bye. Right? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, what I love you, it. What do you mean? Uh, so I had to go to my oh, yeah, um, Newfie di- dictionary and what they did was they handed me at 2 a.m. on some of our party nights the, the dictionary or the, the term sheet, if you will. And that was all the things that Newfies say after, you know, seven or eight beers. <laughs> and I needed to learn that. And so once I learned that, I was like, good to go. Oh, we're gonna have to get we're gonna have to get our hands on that. Cheat sheet. I learned what a townie was, what a payment is, and learned where I was a book at. about just that. You could share that. So, Mike, where'd you grow up? I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. Calgary, Alberta. Yeah. Cowtown. Yeah. I love Calgary. My parents oh. lived in a community called Montgomery, and we lived between the Trans Canada Highway and another major thoroughfare. And so I was convinced we were living middle class, but we were middle class from Montgomery. We had drug dealers, thieves, like crazy stuff going on. And a Friday night on our front porch, you could see some stuff, right? The Trans Am that went down the block, did a big Yui, and then ran right into the house with all the people who owned the Trans Am. And they laughed and clapped and oh. went, woohoo, it's oh time God. to party. You know, uh, but we had the white picket fence, this little brown house. And so we had this like oasis in this crazyville. Um, I love it. The stories are <laughs> this oasis and crazy. Like, it was it was a thing. It and, sounds like a country song, actually. But it was it was great. You know, I have real fond memories, like street hockey, um, being berated by the Métis family because they were just like, Ah, oh, Michael, come on out to play, right? And they would <laughs> they would give me the full like hit with the French, and that you know, of course, I had to like the Montreal Canadiens at the time, and then the Flames came to town, and I was all in. Yeah, I was gonna say you Flames fan. Sorry, I didn't mean to say it like that. Born, raised. (laughs) It's a good team. No, but it's okay. It's got a recent cup. Even though you are. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, it has a cup. That's a deal. Okay, whatever. Listen, listen, (laughs) we're not going to talk about Jim Poplinski kicking in the goal, kicking the puck in (laughs) on Vancouver Canucks that ultimately sent them on their way. Okay. Yeah, we're not talking about that. We're not going to talk about that. And I was at the game six, Pavel Bure, when he scored on the breakaway. Like, I was right behind that and watching it. It was terrible. Like sunk my soul, you know. It was a thing. What an a iconic goal. goal! What a goal that and one! But I have to say, let's or. change the topic. Like, let's go no, back to me. Let's go no. back to Pebble Bridge. Okay. So I grew up in a, in a rough neighborhood, Montgomery, yeah, it was, Alberta. It, it was rough. It was it was rough, but you never felt it, right? You know, it's that's where you grew up. No cowboys in that neighborhood. Like, there's plenty. Of, yeah. You know, shit kicking cowboys with ranches not far away. Yeah. For you sure. go to the stampede when you're. Yeah, and then younger. what happens is so it's funny. I went through my redneck phase, if you will, from high school through university, and I was in phys ed, 
Knees. I don't know. It was, it was dead when I went. And I was the, one of the only people who ever wore cowboy boots every single day. I wore cowboy boots and jeans, and I was the phys ed guy, right? And then somewhere along the way in my early 20s, I flopped, and I went to cowboy boots only during Stampede. And prior, I was wearing flip-flops during Stampede. Oh, my God. Okay. So it was like I was like into it, in it, and then I wasn't. Yeah. I mean, because I want to be cowboy, but I, I'm not there. <laughs> so you're saying you're, you're a phys ed guy, but phys ed guy. But you were business guy for a long, long time. When did the transition happen from being a phys ed guy to businessman? <laughs> I got out of university and went to, into pro sports, worked with pro basketball. I was a five, I'm not very tall, so five seven white kid from Calgary hanging out with a bunch of brothers from the U.S. that were playing ball. It was a 6-6 league, so it wasn't really that over the top. You couldn't be like Muggsy Bogues or anything? Uh, I could. I didn't have that kind of hops, but I was pretty good. At the same time, the league folds. My majority owner gets indicted. <laughs> and Mickey Monas was his name. He got indicted for stealing money, embezzling money from his chain of grocery stores. I ended up in a personal training role. Um, I was actually ended up like cleaning produce at Safeway. Then uh, one of my friends says, come personal train at the hoity-toity, the Glencoe Club in Calgary. And I said, no problem, but I don't want to be Tony Little. Remember Tony Little? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm not God. that freaking oh, guy. The gazelle. I'm the gazelle guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm educated. I work with pro sports. I'm not that guy. And she goes, 30 bucks an hour. I go, I'm in. <laughs> I'm that guy. <laughs> I'll be there. And within a few years, I had Western Canada's largest personal training agency and this this gym in wheel, like in a cube van that I would take to movie sets. From that, one of my clients was the, the vice president of an investment firm. And he says, come work for me. You'll, you don't have to work 14 hours a day and you can make unlimited money. And I'm like, I'm in. Again, one of those. Um, so there's a I trend, no. the pattern, right? Of course, that wasn't exactly true, but it was true. For a period of time, it was like, money hand over fist and then the markets tank and you don't know what you're doing in the first place and so you lose it all and then you bake it all so it was like a, a cycle of that kind of behavior but that's how I got into the industry in about mid 90s and I was there for 22 years investment management and portfolio management and so you must have a rocking portfolio uh, I know what to do with the money. It doesn't rock. <laughs> it just does. Well, the last few years hurts a little bit, but you know. It's yeah. been it's been I a good period of time. Coming. I think that's that's the thing too. I think there's a little bit of hurt coming. Right? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. There's there's stuff coming and um the last time there was a major issue was in two thousand nine and you know, I was driving home uh, in the snow on a September third third week of September <laughs> in my brand new Audi, going to my brand new house, going, I can't stand this gig. I hate what I'm doing. And lo and behold, stuck in traffic, I listened to myself on the radio giving the radio moment. The minute, like the market minute, I was doing those. I had pre-recorded it. And so I'm listening to myself. I'm thinking, I suck. You suck. I want out of this. What am I going to do? The financial crisis is killing everything. And I decided to, like, how would I give a million bucks away to, to charity? How do I do that every year? And I said, let's build a business on that and try there. And so I changed my entire investment business to give instead of hoard capital. And that was pretty cool. Like, I made a go of it. In six years, we were 12 and a half million bucks back to charity and, you know, did some really neat things and changed the way that model was built. Then I got antsy and sold that business and moved in coaching. And that was all in Calgary. So what brought you over into Squamish? Scenery change or? You have this window of time, you know, where you've got business sold. They've got a little comfort. You got a growing business. I was coaching. So all of a sudden I've got a bit of a growing coaching thing. I thought I could move to a place where I could fly out of and come back to and really enjoy. Our daughter wanted to go film school. So perfect place to get to Vancouver Film School. Our boy showed that he could very well be on track to go to the World Cup in downhill mountain bike racing. And now he's there. He's right there today in Lindsay High to uh, Switzerland wow. racing. So we created that what if. What if we just moved to a place where our lives got better from a lifestyle standpoint? And what if the kids had the platforms to just excel? And they've been, you know, killing it. It's been so great. So the community essentially fit the bill. It just, it was like, this is just a really good fit. Yeah. We moved a teenage girl in grade, going into grade 12 and our son at grade nine. Like we were worried about her. And the interesting thing is the foreign student program, right? The international student program, there's 150 kids that were not from here. And most of them are European, quite frankly. So she felt like she fit in. And so immediately she fit in. Our son stood out 
as fresh bait. Handsome boy walking down the halls of junior high school. He was, um, let's just say our first visitors weren't his buddies. But it was it was so good to have them both move in. Eventually they got immersed in the, in the town. And I then began after a few months to start saying hi to everybody. Go back. How do you make money giving away money? So Tell us, I, please. I should, I should just read your books. <laughs> I wrote a couple books specifically on that. And I was able to connect with what people wanted to do. You can't dictate other people's philanthropy, right? Like you can't tell them how to give. Everybody's cause is their thing. But what you can do if you know how to do certain things is you can take their gift, like we could do a $5,000 gift and turn it into a half a million dollar gift. So how do you do that? Well, you know the rules and every all the rules are the same for everybody. Like what passes on a billion dollars to one family in Canada is the same rule that passes on, you know, your cottage to the next generation. You just need somebody in the middle who can be the guide and someone who actually cares enough to help you develop that. So when people said, I I really always wanted to give, these are the causes that matter. You can dig into their finances. And what we did is do investment planning. We did insurance. We did estate planning. So all of that complexity, you know, that's where you make your your money. That's where your business is. Uh, But, you know, the outcome is you're inspired by the fact that people made a gift that they couldn't ever have fathomed. Their kids get to keep all the stuff that they worked for. And the government usually got nothing, which was really fun. Oh, that look at look at so Marcus brings CRA, a smile. Them, there it is. Oh, okay. there he is. As soon as you start talking about now screwing over the government, screw the government over. I yes. you know, yeah. we big I, smiles. That is one thing I now don't hope. But, you know, twelve million dollars equated to five million in tax savings. So, see, that wow. never made sense to me. I already paid taxes purchasing this stuff. If I'm handing it to somebody else, they shouldn't be taxed again. It's already been taxed once. Yeah. But anyway, that's Marcus over. for mayor, man. Yeah, Marcus for mayor. It's, I've heard it's yep. already happening. It's yeah, over. you got those buttons still. We're gonna show Actually, you your name. It's it's pretty funny. I went to Cordelia. <laughs> his locket the other day and the owner came out and said congratulations I'm like for what <laughs> I heard you're running for council <laughs> I'm like I'm not what no I'm like I'm not running for council I was like I heard somewhere you're running for council I'd vote for you I'm like she heard it on the show man <laughs> I asked her do you listen to the podcast she's like no like you should but uh, yeah. what? Was what? Okay. It was just weird. Who doesn't oh, listen to yeah. the show? If you didn't know already, Marcus is running. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And possibly me. He's the name's on the ballot sheet already. 100%. Perfect, right? And then everybody, we could get a bunch of swag, like the monopolizer, the you know, from mayor. Monopolize the opportunity. Oh. Yeah, that's what oh. I heard. This is what it's... Yeah, yeah you heard it here first. It's cool. I like it. Well, okay. So the thing is, I don't know if I want you running for mayor because I like our show and I'm not looking to get, you know... Accosted by Squamish get voices. Political. <laughs> yeah, we never get political here. None at all. I mean, really. Zero politics. We just said Mark John, John, but Marcus's way. Oh, yeah, that's right. As a counselor, would literally be just sunken into lawyers because at the end of the day, he'd have to keep going back and forth on what he's actually allowed to say. And yeah. So he'd have to be getting legal opinions all the time. Yeah, the skip retainer it. would be huge. It's not even worth you even Skip it. it. We're done. No, it's yeah, off the it's table over. now. Yeah, you know what? Let's table this table. for now. Hey, Fryer, let's table this table. for now. And I think table is still next, um, the meeting of council next year. Listen, 100%. Exactly. Sorry. It's, you know what? Mike Scripps. You're welcome. We you, made the. You're the coach here. I, I, I think he's already said it. I think he's. He I think we've all made the decision for him. Yeah. It's fine. Thanks for agreeing with us, Mike. Yeah. Well, I'm huge Appreciate on it. staying in your lane, and that ain't his lane. <laughs> oh Thanks, my man. god! <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate that vote of confidence. It's awesome. That's all right. Oh my god! We're pumping you up here, Marcus. No, it doesn't feel like it. No, no. Now Not we're taking all. you down, though. Okay, so it's funny. Um, you have a podcast. I do have a podcast. Tell me about your podcast. Oh, okay. Well, this this gets this is getting into the heavy stuff, which is good. But uh, it's called the Unlimited Worth Podcast. So, Unlimited Worth uh, came to me as a result of some pretty dark times. I navigated the waters of massive depression and suicidal uh, contemplations, and it happened not too long ago, in September actually of 2021. Here I was trying to reinvent my business that I had dialed in pretty well. Like I was um, speaking and doing workshops and that was a great way to have people get to know me so they could test the waters and go, that's the kind of guy I'd like to spend some time with and learn some things from. Uh, The digital world wasn't exactly the same. And the isolation and the involvement I had in the first year of the pandemic with serving people to a point where I wasn't doing anything for myself was very trying and you didn't notice the stress was building up. And so after about 18 months, I don't know, I just hit a moment where I just lost this contract and it wasn't very big. 
I'd lost million dollar business in the past, right? Like I've been through that and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And here I was diving deep into some depression that I didn't know was coming. And then I was out walking because that was how you clear your head in the middle of a Zoom day. We've talked about Zoom. Uh, I looked at the river and I'm like, that would be probably a good place for me to spend some time. And uh, my family would be really good with the insurance that, speaking of financial planning, I did some really good planning and they'd be set. And I was feeling that worthlessness, the hopelessness, all of this useless stuff of not being able to get my business going where I wanted it to, not seeing a future that I liked and feeling not worthy that, you know, like I should be here. There was 10 days in there in September that were just like the darkest. I can't remember. A peri- like it was never, I've never been there. I'm an optimist. Um, Evelyn knows me. Mm-hmm. I'm forever seeing the bright side of life. For sure. And uh, and I was always raised that way. You know, I grew up in a rough area. My parents kept us insulated in a way of optimism, right, and hope. So this was just so much more than that, driving away from your financial job in this beautiful Audi to a beautiful home. It was bigger. It was profound. And part of it, you know, I reached out to somebody I had known and loved, and she was a former client, a, a psychologist, I actually helped her write her first book, going back all the way to books. You know, I I reached out, I texted her, I said, Diana, I need some help. And she goes, what do you need? And I go, I just need to talk like tomorrow. And she goes, I'm good, let's do it. And so with a little tough love, a little Calgary boot in the ass and a little bit of, um, you know, understanding of my circumstances and love, she righted the ship. And from that moment, I started a path of healing. And one of the biggest things for me is I needed to fix, like I had some shit. (laughs) And I was like, how do I end up doing this over and over again? Why am I in this situation? Why have I found myself in this transition once again? I got to fix it once and for all. And so I had to go back and go, what was the moment in my life that set a pattern that I can't unwind, that I need some help? I need some pro help. I got to fix it because if I fix this, maybe I'll fix everything. I had to look back into it. And I was looking back into like being abused at 11 years old. I was abused by a pillar of the community you know, ex-Air Force war hero, Lancaster bomber over Germany, 35 missions, um, choir master, community boy, leader boy, champion boys, all these parents would just hand their kids off to this guy thinking they were in great hands. And what they were in is hands of a predator. And I was abused once and it was enough. And it was enough to set some patterns in my 11-year-old brain that lived with me for an entire lifetime, for 40 years. I had to dig in. I had to figure it out. Part of it was reaching out to a good counselor locally in Vancouver, going through some treatment. And part of it was disclosure. And that was coming to terms with this is like, this is who I am. This is what it's all about. And getting to that moment where I can go, okay, I got to deal with this. What does it all look like? Mike, did you ever talk about it prior to this time? Like over the years, did you ever speak uh, the about first it? first nine, eight years was zero after. I got in the car, closed the door, sat with my mom, drove home that night and never said a word, quit what I was doing, quit a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was a great student, great at music. Like I was, I was one of those successful kids, right? And I did a lot of stuff really well. And at a 19, I told a girlfriend and she said, maybe you should talk to somebody. And so I went into a counselor and the counselor said, we can't go after the guy because it's like eight years later. Nowadays, like they put Kevin Spacey on trial for 30 years ago, right? Maybe deservedly so, of course, but you know, 30 years, eight years was too much apparently. And she said, when we can't really do much for you. And I left. I went, okay, well, I guess I got to deal with this on my own. So buried it again. And then spent the next 30 years not dealing with it. I told my wife and one other woman. And women were always my safe place. They, they never tricked me, never treated me bad. They were always the place where I could go for, for support. I told my wife and she'd never had trauma in her life, never had experience like that. And she was she's loving, empathetic and absolutely wonderful. And she said, OK, well, I'm going to deal with it this way. And, you know, you seem OK. And I was okay because I was on a trajectory, success in business, and then all of a sudden something would go wrong, transition, success in business, something would go sideways. You know, it was usually the people I aligned with. What ended up happening is that pattern kept repeating over and over again, but it wasn't obvious. You're like, oh, it's just bad people. Like, I don't know. It's not my fault. And then I get to this moment and I'm going, it's all connected. I never had free will because the 11-year-old kid had to protect himself from the, unfortunately for me, it was the absolute best person in the room. Like the community said, this is the best guy in the community. Right. 
So yeah. my inclination was never trust the best guy in the community. Oh, yeah. And so if you never trust the best man in the room, you don't excel at business. And I was all in finance and business. So it was all about that. I didn't go out and not trust them consciously, but I repelled them or I chose people who were flawed because I could see it coming, you know? Who helped you make that connection though? Did you get help figure that out, your patterns, or it was just something you sort of self-analysis, you figure that out? It became painfully clear to me when I connected that that was what was going on 40 years later. I'm like, that's what it is. Now I had my counselor and an excellent EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. Okay, I just I wanted to say that because now that I've got it clear, <laughs> um, he helped me move through this process, but it was suddenly so clear. Like all of the patterns were about this kid who had to protect himself. And so you go, okay, well, everything I've ever done innately I had this one mechanism that I didn't know about, and then I thought I had choice. I thought I had free will. I thought I could navigate the waters. I was smart. I could mitigate people's shortcomings, but you can't because you're not operating at that level. Like subconsciously, Mm -hmm. you're repelling good people and you're bringing people into your life that you can see the danger. These aren't good people. And I was in the stock market, like it was in the markets, right? So every few years, shit goes down. And people who have flaws don't last through those moments and they do crazy stuff. And I happen to always be like aligned with them. Right. And so I would always get the shrapnel. Hold on a sec. We'll be right back after this. Hey, Marcus. So I know you're not a beer guy. We're always crushing tins in here, but we actually have North Yard Cider on board. I like a good cider. Do you? Yeah. It doesn't have that crazy aftertaste like beer does. And it's like, it's crisper. And I like the dry cider. It just tastes so good. Yeah. It's just a non-decider cider, you know? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) When you can't decide what you want to drink, you have a decider cider. Really? Yeah. That's the the rule. I, I never heard that. I know. I just made that up. But you know. <laughs> I've had their ciders. It's great. They've got so many different kinds, too. They've got the dry cider, the semi-dry. They've got like cool things like raspberry cider and the grapefruit hopped cider. And it's so good. And they're local. They started this business in Squamish. They have their own farm now, I heard. Well, it's all about the juice. And now they have their own orchard in Salmon Arm. They're still tied into Squamish heavily. If your local liquor store doesn't carry it, just ask them to carry it. Tantalus Fine Beverages, they distribute throughout the Sea to Sky and all over BC, actually. So if you want to try any of the flavors, they are at the farmer's market. I know every second Saturday, usually Tantalus Fine Beverages is there giving out North Yard's samples. Yeah, Kurt. I saw Kurt actually last Saturday. I know. I popped over there. Got a couple of samples. <laughs> free cider. <laughs> and it's so good. I'm not argue free cider, especially if it's tasty. Right? And it's so good. And I think he had like four or five different flavors too, so... If you want more information, check out NorthyardCider.com. Crafting fine cider since 2018. Northyard Cider Company, your gateway to great taste. Now, back to the show. Was it the therapy that helped you realize these patterns? Uh, what exactly is the therapy? What does it do for you? EMDR, you know, I equate it to, I'm right in the, in the book, I'm using it like ice. So I'm an, I'm an athlete as well. And I've blown my ACL. You, you ever blow your ACL? I have. Fair? Yeah. No. It's fun. And it sucks, right? It's a terrible injury. And it takes quite a long time to get to back up to like full speed. About 18 months for me. And um, even then you might not get full speed. And you're not anyway. maybe there. <laughs> and so here I was looking at, you know, an injury, essentially, right? Rewiring, I'm hardwiring my brain. And this treatment and EMDR is a way of creating this bilateral stimulation and combines it with talk therapy. The process of going into the dark, deep, bad stuff and moving this bilateral stim along, you start to release the pain because it kind of confuses your brains. And it basically, if you're thinking you're tricking your neurons to like reconnect to different pathways. And that's kind of what happens. And so it actively is tricking your brain into this new pattern. And then you start associating with good stuff. So I take it like ice, like ice is there to remove the pain, decrease the inflammation and allow you to get to the healing and the rehab. And so EMDR works very effectively at removing the anxiety, the stress, like remove the hopelessness and the worthlessness and all the shame and the guilt. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I can rationally think of this stuff and I can think and see how it's connected. Logic starts to take over and you go, holy shit, this is all like this and this and this. And then my book, the first half of the book is all about all these patterns that were connected to the emotions, right? Like, why do I feel worthless? Why didn't I trust people? Why did I feel like I wasn't enough, right? It was because I felt I had these relationships with 
bad men because I didn't like good men because good men were the danger. It was the pattern of keeping people at distance or the pattern of helping people, right? Helping people so much that you're not getting it reciprocated, then you're left empty. So all of those things, um, you start to go logically, you're like, okay, that's connected and you can start to change it. So this happened, you said when you were 11, so we're talking about 40 years. Was there a stigma preventing you from getting that help beforehand? That's why there's a lot of movement now to get mental health, men's mental health particularly, and get men talking about it because there's always been that men not are not supposed to be weak. They're not supposed to have emotional breakdowns. They're supposed to be tough and we get through it. Sort yeah. Of attitude. That's why, like you asked originally, the whole kickoff was about the podcast. It's about normalizing the narrative. Right. You'll notice I talk about this in pretty plain terms. I don't really, I don't carry shame and guilt about the situation. I don't feel like a victim, but for 40 years, well, for 30 of them, because the first decade I kind of blocked it out. Like it was a mechanism to survive. But as an adult, I'm thinking, well, I got a public personality. And as I got more successful in the community, I became more public. And so the last thing I wanted to do was have everybody going, okay, well, but then there's this. But what I didn't know is the whole time I was trying to prevent it from defining me, it was defining me. People who are good and, un, I don't know, untraumatized, if you will, or healed, know something's up. Like, I'm fortunate. I didn't have addiction issues. I didn't, like, I didn't go into that because I had a great family hub. Like, I had a lot of love, so I had the support. But here I was making these repeat, like, these mistakes, I call them now, but I didn't know I was making them. And I think it comes back to you bury that. Right? Yeah. You buried it, and then really, you essentially put this emotional wall up and tried to just forget about it. Yeah. But when you made that connection, they're all connected. These things, these events, these traits are all interconnected. That you kind of went, yeah, you know what? I've got I've to do something about this. Then you're right, Marcus, the stigma stuff. Mental health has become a huge thing for men and a huge thing in sports too as yeah. well. Obviously, you see it a lot. The best people are those people who can self-evaluate. They can go, you know what? I'm the fourth line guy or I'm the first line guy. Yeah. What am I on the team, right? And I always kind of say from a business perspective, it's very easy to pump your own tires and ask somebody and say, hey, tell me three things you do really well. And most people can just bam, 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 bam. Yep. They'll tell you. But then you give them the flip side. What are three things you can work on? Areas of improvement for yourself. And if you don't know what your areas of improvement are, you cannot broach them like you're talking about when you run into that situation. That's something I need to be mindful of. It helps you correct it. And it's you know interesting. I mean? um, you know, I was selected for abuse because I was the best, right? I was picked out and I was going to be a soloist, right? So you're the best. And in order to get the opportunity, you need to do this. And then and I was put in the predatory situation. Going fast forward into life, you start going, well, one of the things that I would consciously do is rise but just enough, right? Vice president, not president. I want that, you know, second in command. And then eventually you start, those habits start to get into you and you go, instead of at the business meeting where, you know, we're at the cocktail party or the big conference, um, I'm not hanging out with the elites, you know, having a conversation. I'm back with the comfortable people I feel comfortable with getting drunk or whatever, right? Just like shying away from that. So you begin to shy away from the limelight. When you talk about stigma, I didn't want to be the poster child. I didn't want this to be like, hey, Mike's the guy, you know? I didn't want that, but every day it would define you, right? So there's not a day I didn't think about it, so clearly it was guiding my life. So there's that internal struggle. There's the internal struggle, but then there's the people don't understand. Men don't have a clue what treatment's like. I thought, okay, well, all this 12-step programs and all the addictions, they all say, you got to confess all your sins. I'm like, I don't want to tell everybody everything I've done bad, right? <laughs> like, you know, and you don't have to. And I didn't want to stand on a stage and tell everybody. You have to tell one person who loves you and you can trust and a therapist, like a professional. You tell those two people your secret, the trauma that you experience, if you're that person and you're, it's one out of six that report. 24 years is the average time it takes a man to report childhood sexual abuse. So, you know, if it's one out of six, that means that that's low because it does take so long. And, you know, someone in the room, in an executive boardroom, you know, know, on on a sports team, someone is suffering big time and they don't feel comfortable or safe that if they share their secret, that everyone else will be good. My first non-wife, like non-therapist, non was my daughter. Oh, wow. I told our daughter, 20-year-old woman. We're having a couple of drinks on the patio. I finally felt like that was the moment, and we just talked, and it was amazing. And she rose. 
to rose to the occasion. So here's what you get to learn is every time you fear that no one will understand, no one will care for you and you'll be a pariah, suddenly you're accepted, loved more and brought in to the fold. Because don't we all, when we have friends in our in our circle of friends who um, are suffering, we want them to reach out. I'm there for you. We'll yeah. be there. Just call us. Yeah. No one calls, right? Because they suffer. And we don't have to because everyone will level up. They will step up. And then my son was the next one. Then my mother was the next one. That was hard, dude. Mm, like mom must have been a tough one. Well, I had to tell her that <clears throat> I jumped into a car with her right after. Right. And that she couldn't protect me. So all, let me just preface all of this. I would have been perfectly content to have never shared. My secret didn't have to come out to anybody. Like I really, yeah. but since it's out, you know, I think I'm pretty prepared to maybe do something good, good with it. Right. So that's where I am. I, I you know, I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want like Sheldon Kennedy, that whole Graham James thing it was a big deal for me in our community as well. Cause we had Theo Fleury, we had Sheldon Kennedy. Mm -hmm. We have like a lot, kind of my genre of hanging out and partying with the flames and the hockey guys. And the problem was, is I never wanted to be that poster child, right? So I'm like, I'm not gonna be that guy. I don't want people doubting my skills as a professional. Like there were so many reasons, so much risk. The more successful you are, the better you become at burying this stuff. Right. And sure. when you're really at your top of your game, you've convinced yourself that you've licked it. You're good. Like I, I'm a success story. That shit is like, I put that stuff behind me. And then when you're down low, you don't want to show your vulnerability. Like you want to give a weakness. You don't want to open that crack because someone may come in, take your business. Like it's that scarcity mindset, that fear. And none of it's real. That's the thing is you perceive it all. And what I learned is everyone loved me more. I was perceived as being strong courageous brave and it was i was better so i the treatment i got within a couple of weeks of like serious intense treatment i was better like it was it's behind me you know and so now i don't live with any of that emotion so did it, did it feel like just a massive weight was lifted <laughs> off your shoulders yeah you've had this massive weight you've 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 shared your vulnerability that's got to be heavy in itself Totally. You shared it and it's out there now. And this is the reason why we do this podcast like this, because we're telling ordinary people's extraordinary stories and we're trying to make sure, you know, that stories like yours get out because if it helps one person. Yeah. It's help one person. I'm really interested oh, in this. Oh, yeah. I have another beer. Uh, bike rides out. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know. <laughs> I give him a millhouse. I was trying to find a way to get in there just to talk about beer throughout yeah. the whole addiction issue part. But. We have to talk about beer, <laughs> and you spilled your beer all over yourself, which is hilarious. <laughs> the run forest. It was a heavy run. conversation. The beer just needed to get out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's backcountry brewing's run forest run is what you spilled all over your leg, and you've can. been enjoying it, right? Oh, I'm absolutely enjoying this. And how was how was your Harry Potter one there, Mike? How was that Harry one? Harry Potter. Oh. Don't forget the Muggles. Don't forget the Muggles. Don't forget the last inch. I am really interested in this therapy. Uh, what is it? E M D E M D R D R. Okay. Yeah. So where does somebody access this kind of treatment? You could pretty much just Google EMDR in mm -hmm. Vancouver, or you know, and you'll find therapists. There's therapists yeah. that and this there is what are they specialists. Practice. And like I, so the lady I reached out to, we did EMDR for. I had some road rage shit <laughs> and I didn't connect any of it. Uh, you're from, you're from Calgary. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's out. a Calgary. Before I thing. moved out, I'm like, <laughs> I want to kill everybody on the road and everybody is wronging me. Like, so th there's a little justice thing with this whole trauma that I experienced, but at the level I had, I was experiencing, I just want to kill everybody. I needed someone to like help me not do that. I never ever got out of my car. That I'm that's never I'm wanted to wrap your uh, seatbelt around. Someone. Oh, I wanted to. I never wanted never to go did, up to the window right? and wrap oh, their seatbelt around their neck. And my daughter and I were fighting. Uh, <laughs> we were doing Muay Thai fighting, and like I was feeling pretty jacked, and I was ready to go. But no, never. So I asked. I said, Diana, help me like this. And she goes, I have this. I can do EMDR. It's like a PTSD thing, and it's really effective. And and so one session and immediately removed the like all the anxiety wow. so it's it's one of those and some people do say it's pseudoscience but i've never talked to somebody who's ever been through it that didn't say it was like ice on an injury it removed all the anxiety brought the stress levels down wow. and then all the other stuff you do all the processes and strategies used to think about things so it's like ice for your mental health you know i i love that personally wow. i know that probably 
professionals are cringing about that stuff. But <laughs> yeah. for well, me, I think, I think if you it's put totally yourself, true. If you put yourself in a position, you're willing to talk about it, and then you finally get it out to a professional, I think that's already anxiety relieving. Breaking down that initial wall to healing by just sitting down in a room with a therapist and talking. So the moment I went into the depression till probably midway through the treatment I got in mid-December, I wanted to cry every day. <laughs> Or I did cry every day, right? And so you're like, well, that's no way to live. There was one moment in the middle of that that it just changed. Everything lifted. I say it's like an Avengers movie where, you know, when they hit the ground and everything shakes on the screen and then they stops and it's like HD clear. Nothing looks different, but everything was different. Like immediately the energy in my life was different. The energy that I was exuding. I always talk about it in like quantum physics thing where I spent my entire life colliding with other people's stuff. It was all about the matter, like the stuff. And then once I got to that point, it was only about the space in between because we're mostly space in between. We're like 90% space, not stuff. And all of a sudden people called me out of the blue and shared all their stories. I hadn't talked to people. One guy phones me up. He goes, you'll never believe what happened the last year. I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to guess right now. But, and then, and I hadn't talked to him in two years. Just all of a sudden, uh, a couple of opportunity, job opportunities, some business changes, like everything changed. Mike, how many sessions did you, did you do with that therapy? I, I did our, our initial one and then I had to figure out some finances because my business was effed. Um, but by the time I figured that out and sorted it out, we did two weeks straight of two hour intense therapy every day. Every day? Yeah. For business days. Yeah. Two weeks straight. Wow. It so was is intense. It a continued thing? Like, do you, is, it, is it a therapy that you still go through to this day? Like, like on maybe not as intensively, but like still continue to do? That's a great question because um, I was doing check-ins. You know, after three months or so, I said, I, you know, I'd like a check-in. I just want to make sure I'm okay. You know, you start to go, I think I'm fine. <laughs> I'm healed, right? And and you go, well, I better check in to make sure I'm not, I'm not like imagining this mm-hmm. shit. And, and so I did some check-ins and now actually, now I'm looking at it for how can it help other people? Because I'm talking to men regularly who've been on the other, all the way through. So I'm, I'm not a therapist. I don't like dive into other people's you know, who haven't gotten it, like their problems, right? I, I say, go see a professional and talk to someone you love. That's that's it. You're just sharing lived experience. Yeah, you got the experience, Correct. right? Right, but now I'm talking to men regularly on my podcast and prior interviewed for the book. These men had been through the same thing and I, I wanted to see if they felt the same. And yes, they felt the same. Yes, it was immediate. EMDR was a miracle. Like they just all the same story and that they could function at a level that they never thought they could. Wow. And that's how I feel right now. And then I'm starting to look at EMDR and go, well, (laughs) so I'm looking for an opportunity, right? I'm like, okay, well, help me take care of the shit. What about leveling up? Like if it can rewire and reprocess, can I like start fastening on good positive you know mindset into this and the answer is yes Hmm. and so now the last session i did was we're working on only positives like we're not we weren't focusing on any of the negative stuff any of the trauma and we're just saying what do you need to focus on what does five years look like what are you doing in your best life you know let's focus on that and so it's not an experiment but it's where i am right now with this is it's like why don't we level this up and so i'm now reaching out to other successful men in various industries, like perceived success. Like everybody's got their, you know, from CEOs, executives to entertainers and athletes. First of all, let's deal with the traumas that they may not know are causing challenges. Like, why do you keep getting traded? Like, why does Kane keep getting traded? Well, I wonder, because he's got some shit. Um, Baggage. Right, there's baggage, right? You call it baggage and we all slough it off. But the reality is he's he's got some serious stuff, right? He has uh, women issues and a lot of uh, detrimental personality there. Those are symptoms and no one will ever say he has mental illness and then he kills himself and you go, I wonder what happened, right? Like that's, I didn't have mental illness. But I could have been a statistic. And so you don't realize until that moment. And so now I'm like, well, how do we help that group clear through the next level? Because look at the impact that those people can have. Like if I was well at 28, holy shit. I'm sure for you it feels this massive weight lifted off your shoulders and allows just so much more clarity. I always say, though, you know. Personally and professionally. If you lost, like, I'm not going to tell anyone that this is like the cure-all because... For me, it mentally, it's a cure-all. However, 
<laughs> if you lost your business, your house, your wife, your car, and your dog ran away, it doesn't like put it all back <laughs> into place. Like you still got to, but you're better prepared. You know, you start to begin to trust. And that's the biggest thing is it, you end up dumping the shame, the guilt, and all the worthlessness and all the hopelessness. And you start to trust. And you trust it's okay. And you'll be okay. We live in an urban society that is pretty safe and comfortable. No one's threatening our lives on a daily basis. So, you know, you're really going to be fine. You just have to trust that, that will, things will work out if you've done the work. You spoke to the, the Graham James incident, Sheldon Kennedy. Yeah. It changed a lot. You talk about CRCs, criminal record checks. You talk about, you know, vulnerable person checks, this kind of stuff. Changed a lot of things for a lot of people who are volunteering. And, and I've always said it's it's for the good. Oh, it's I, really for the good. 100%. You have to remember, too, oftentimes, just like you said, this is a pillar of the community. This was the guy. This was the guy that everybody looked up to. Yeah, he did stuff so for he would have cleared, boys. He would have cleared right? CRCs and VPDs all day long. He wouldn't have to because he was a, a decorated Air Force pilot, right? Yeah. Like, and he, he went on, like he abused a ton of guys before me, a bunch of guys after, I don't know. Like that guilt, I could really still carry that. I don't. And the EMDR treatment helped. Like I don't care. I'm not guilty for not speaking up. That was what a kid did to protect himself. It's not my fault. But, you know, the, there's one of them went on to repeat and then abuse others. And that guy went to jail. And unfortunately, I think one of the kids was in my own neighborhood. That guy abused. And so when you see it like firsthand, you're like, frick, man. But it's not your responsibility at that level. Um, it was later, but it was too late. You look at all the the opportunities for men to like improve. You know what's going on with Hockey Canada right now. Come on. Like, I was in university. There's shit. I saw it. I wasn't part of it, but I know it existed. We all know what it is. The, the dressing rooms that kids live in, and it's not just hockey, it's football, it's everything. That shit should not be getting shoved under the rug, and boys should not feel like they can't talk about it. It doesn't mean you have to change everything because about being a man there's like a thing about being a man a man has like fucking testosterone and we like are we're, we're guys but at the same time we have to have that comfort that some shit is not right you yeah know? And, and there's there's a ripple effect to that trauma the ripple effect is 30 percent of men who are traumatized especially sexually abused repeat yeah. fortunately i'm part of the, the yeah, two-thirds there's, that there's even a ripple effect to that there's negatives that that abound oh. from that incident yeah, you know what I mean? The, and the, and, and it, it can family, span generations, kids. right? You know, I'm I'm fortunate. What I what I investigated was how how does it affect men, professionally or personally? So personally, I was always my safe place was my family and my wife, right? That was safe for me. So that was usually pretty good. Like I didn't have a lot of challenges there. Professionally, it was that was where it's messed up. But a lot of men it's personally and I think there's a, a thing about duration of abuse too like if you've been abused for years stuff gets very different very real it's far more profound you know you got you're with a guy in the boardroom who's going he's everything he's outperforming he's doing that and then at the same time his entire family's a disaster I you know I had the luxury of speaking with a wonderful woman today who's husband is one of the most high profile businessmen in Canada a number of years ago he killed himself you know, there was the stuff that was going on at home. He was a rock star in the public. Quite honestly, I think, you know, these guys who go and do commit suicide, they're often the guys that everybody says. They had it all. I never, yeah. They had it all. Or, they had it all. I could never yeah. see that happening yeah. for him. Right. Right. Robbie because, Williams. Because they're Funny masters man. at hiding it. Yeah. Um, I was a master. Like, Evelyn, you know me. Yeah. Would you have suspected that absolutely. was my story this year? Oh, last my year? God. No, absolutely right. not. Never. No. Absolutely not. That's what I'm saying. That's the thing. It's from a men perspective. It's always that. It's always, I just can't see that from that guy. Mm -hmm. Totally. I, and I also wasn't hiding. Like I was always authentic, but what I never was giving all of myself. And right. that is the one thing, you know, I talked with some people professionally who, you know, that I know that I've kind of floated away from and, and I had an opportunity to speak with them and a man I respect, you know, a huge business success down in the states and yeah there was always something here's what happened though and and we have a good relationship and i we just strayed a bit and he goes but we couldn't put our finger on it and that hit me a big time because he said you know when he said we that meant he and the others in his organization had been talking hmm. mike's great do we bring him in do we not bring him in and they just they they their choice was we're gonna give him slack and room and we're not gonna like dig in and let him go 
that was like the exactly what probably happened. How many times in my life and my career? How many people had that backroom conversation? If you want to translate it to sports, how many coaches, managers are sitting in the corner going, well, we can't take that guy. We can't bring that guy to the next. He's not going to fit in the dressing room. He's not part of the team. You know, like that's the conversation. And you don't want to be part of that. Con- you don't want to be the topic of that conversation, right? That's exactly it. Right. You don't but, want you don't want to be the focus of that conversation. Correct. And you don't, don't know you are. You didn't do anything wrong. You're not trying to purposely do anything wrong. Like you don't say, screw those guys. Like that's not what's going through your narrative. You're like, I'm being as genuine as I can. I'm authentic. What you see is what you get, right? Like that's what... Um, what you see is what you get, yep. but you didn't get it all. We have this innate thing. It's like you can't walk up to someone with your hands in your pockets, your hands behind your back. If you have your hands behind your back, you're people like, <laughs> I don't fucking trust that guy, right? <laughs> what do you have behind your back? And yeah. like, a surprise for you, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like a knife or, or, yeah. or a bouquet of flowers. Um, we know innately in our heads and our instincts that we're in danger. People don't want to deal with people that they feel like they're in danger with. right? And somehow... That little bit was always present. And so it limits you. It limits you. So, so I now feel like I, I don't have any limits because all my cards on the table, but who knows? Like, so I'm going to go we'll back how to this your, goes. your newfie neighbor <laughs> and your cheat sheet. Nice. And I wouldn't say that you've conquered this, but you've treated it. You, you're speaking about it. That's half the battle, I think. Yep. I personally think. I've never had personal trauma in this respect. Yeah. So I can't gravitate to it, but I understand that obviously just having the conversation is sometimes the most difficult part and you're out there and you're helping and you're sharing your story, which I think innately will help others. But I'm going to ask you the question, where are you at buds? Like, where are you at now? I'm at a freaking great spot right now. Like uh, every business thing I've ever done had a, an agenda. I had an outcome. I had a preconceived idea of what the transaction was going to look like. And, you know, being in the financial industry for 20 years, it's pretty like immediate. Transactions happen, risk reward, everything is like right there. In other business, you all, I always had a plan. I have a process because I'm now like I'm 52. <laughs> I've learned some things. So I have a process in life and I know how to do business and I'm prepared. But for the first time ever, I don't have this outcome uh, that's clear. What's even better is what I'm doing today resonates with people at a level that I never would have achieved any other time, or I haven't achieved until now. This conversation today is at a point and a level that we're having that I never would have had. So something in what I'm doing will catch fire, it will resonate, and that's good because I wanna change a million men's lives Right. And the families that care about them. So it has to, you know, I have to get on as many stages and podcasts and whatever else so that then my book has to get out there so that people can heal. You know, I, I feel confident that somewhere along the way, this is, you know, there's just good fortune along with it. Um, but I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it will be. I don't have any preconceived pattern or outcome to this. And Mike, I don't, I don't know you before today. Yeah. This has been absolutely amazing. Fryer, you're this, awesome. This, this talk has been great, and I can see the passion for it. And there's got to be a passion inside of you, something inside of you that wants to help these people. And we talked about making millions of dollars to give away millions of dollars. Yeah, you know, and there's innately something in you has that drive and I think it's really cool to see you you know setting or wanting to send men who are possibly having the same issue and it doesn't have to be exactly the same no. some hey. kind of trauma related ripple oh yeah on the path to healing mm-hmm. trauma doesn't like you know you could be admonished for never doing your blah homework right or you know you never clean the dish like so it helps you you start going holy shit how did I screw my kids up and in childhood of all things, we all are going to experience trauma. Like we start at zero and we get like a scorecard of how much trauma we get. And if we get into adult life without baggage, it, right, right? Baggage, right? Baggage and, accumulated along the way. Right. And if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Well, no, that was, that's always been the mantra, right? It may, it's the mantra, but if you had it happen as a kid in your formative brain, it will kill you. The odds are pretty high, like four out of five suicides that happen today between 25 and 60 years old are men, and it will kill the man in you. It's funny, the whole story about suicide has become more of a thing. Men don't have illness until they kill themselves, and then they go, holy shit, that guy was not not good. That's the thing. He was not a good sign. He thought he was good. 
Right. You know what I mean? But you, Friar, you you know, you haven't had this experience, you haven't had this life, you know, trauma. You are one of the most responsible people for helping create a space where guys go, you know, I could probably talk to Friar about this. That's what guys who have trauma need other guys who don't to do. You got a book in the works right now. I got a book in the works. And I just want to be very clear. The book in the works is more to the point of what you went through and not similar to your previous ones, which is probably business yeah, related. Bet. Is that correct? Yeah, you bet. So the Unlimited Worth Project is like the all-encompassing. It's the podcast, the book, the speaking tour, all that, and whatever else kind of comes into play. The book started as a memoir. Now it's about that journey, right? That journey from, holy crap, I got to, you know, men kill themselves a lot and there's something below that surface. Um, and what were the patterns? For me, I'm like, I've written a lot of books, so it's all about words for me. So what are the mo- emotions? That's words. And what are the patterns that are causing those emotions? And so there's a causal relationship and then there's a point of healing. And then on the other side, it's just emotions. Like you can be happy and it doesn't have to like be connected to anything. You can be trusting and you can just be trusting. All of these things that I found on the other side that are words, they just happen for people who aren't hurt, aren't injured, if you will, or people who are healed. Again, they just happen naturally. So the book is about that and then ties in, you know, some stories that, you know, are relevant that from my life and are validated by all the interviews I did with men who have healed. So how can people find your book? Right now, they can go to my website, MikeScriptNick.com. They'll find the Unlimited Worth Project and podcast um, in on the site. Um, it's pre-sales. It's almost done, and we're just going to editing and then publishing. So by late summer, it will be available on Amazon. Mike Skripnik, it has been amazing having you in the pod shed. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Men's health is such an important topic, and I'm just I'm so thrilled and happy you're at where you at now. Yeah, Thanks right. for Thank sharing you. your your extraordinary story, and hopefully. Uh, it leads people down the path to healing. So thanks for showing up here at the pod shed and sharing your story with us. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Where You At Buds is produced by Evelyn Schellenberg and Stephen Fryer. Marcus Monopoly is our executive producer and edits the show. Theme music, Wannabes by Dirtbag Republic. Our voice guy is Matt Grant. Where You At Buds is an Anubis Media production. Thanks for listening and let us know where you at, buds. Follow us on our socials. Links are in the show notes. And please subscribe. Subscribe.